Night falls on the golden age of humanity. Sons shall turn upon their father, and his worlds drown in blood. The eye shall open, and the galaxy will burn. Join us, listeners. We go into the canon lore of the Forge World Black Books on Heresy Grad School. Professors Jason, Patrick, and Dave, myself, will dive into the lore of the Black Books and the Black Library novels that we know and love and explore the heresy as history. So get a coffee, get your notebook out, and uh, prepare to explore heresy as history with us on Heresy Grad School. They really need to find a better voice for Craig. Just putting that out there. So if the developers who created Craig are listening, please find a better voice. Right? If the GPS people could do it, like get us some Patrick Stewart or something. Right? Want a hot Australian voice. Mm. I feel like that should be a setting on everybody's phone. Agreed. I I want my directions in like sexy Australian I didn't know that was an Australian accent. Sexy Australian. It is. I mean, I mean, I find the accent. I mean, sexy. at this point, I would accept Crocodile Dundee. I'm just putting that out there. Um, that being said, I'd also really appreciate like a Boom Hauer um, from King of the Hill or something like that. You would never get where you're going. Uh, you, would drive, you would just drive around in circles. Taking a left turn here, man. It would be awesome, though. Oh, all right. Well, everybody, welcome back to another uh, episode of Heresy Grad School, part of the Remembrancers Retreat. Um, I'm Patrick, and I'm here with Professors Dave and Jason, as always. And we're breaking into a new segment, fellas. I know I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be good. Yeah, um, getting into those thousands and thousands of suns. We are. We're going to be talking about. The 15th Legion, and the 15th Legion is a great um, segue from where we were last episode um, a couple weeks ago, talking about warp cults and the, the sort of the hypocrisy of the imperial truth, right? You mean the imperial lie, Dave? Well, so this is crazy. So, so Pat, this was like before I think anyone I know had book eight. Right. So I go to Adepticon. I stand in line for like two and a half hours, which was um, actually amazing because I got to chat with uh, Sarah Keisler, who is the most, the, just the coolest chick in the entire world. And I think I sent you guys um, her, Os- the, the Osiris project, um, the, her little a th- a Thousand Sons Kill Team, which we should probably post. Cause it's awesome. And it's yeah. Is that the awesome sons. one that has like the comic backstory and like it, you open it up yeah. like a tome and it's got stuff in it. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, so it was really cool. And then I got book eight and that was really cool. And I, so I, <laughs> then no, I got book eight. That it was, was cool like, too. it was like win, win. Right. And, um, 
So I get back to my room and I start reading book eight. And the first page is like the great lie. And I'm like, what the fuck? And I start reading and it's just all about what we were talking about, right? It's all about the hypocrisy of the imperial truth and how Malkador and the emperor sort of, you know, mostly Malkador because the emperor is like busy doing like real things. Um, how he sort of conspired to cover it up. Right. And it's very cool. It's very interesting. It's super on point with where we were going. Um, and it brings in the thousand sons. So within like the first, I want to say 20 pages, uh, Pat and Jason, we get two really cool, um, deep lore stories on the early thousand sons, which is where we're going, right? With this whole thing, we want right. to look at the, the the early, the early and the deep lore um, of the fifteenth legion, because they're, you know, um, sort of, you know, by design, right? They're more warp attuned, higher percentage of psychers, um, and then Magnus, right? So you have this. You, you sort of have this very bizarre juxtaposition of um, Malkador and his secret order of elucidators that are trying to um, cover up and sort of destroy any evidence of the warp. And then you've got the 15th Legion and uh, they're just like trying to get after it, right? They're like, what are these secrets? We need them. Bring them back to the library. Um, so I'm going to read a really cool call-out box on page 18 of book eight. Uh, I think most people are, are getting their book eights now, so this will be pretty cool. Um, but this is sort of the segue, I think, that'll let us jump into um, the Thousand Suns, and then Jason will uh, will pick up with uh, some pretty cool early lore on the uh, the Fifteenth Legion. So this is called the Boxurian Orders. And it talks about the elucidators, which were these, the, the secret office that Malkador has inside of the early sort of, um, I don't know, bureaucrat, not the bureaucrats, but the, uh, the sort of the administratum that goes out. They're like the, the bean counters of the, of the early Imperium, right? But within this um, very kind of bureaucratic body of, uh, of officials, um, there's this secret order called the elucidators and their task is to report on any, um, instance of warp, uh, sort of cult activity and then report back and then destroy it. And so they're basically sanctioned, uh, by the sigillite, by Malkador to, by any and all means necessary, uh, you know, erase all traces of warp cult and warp activity. So it's very cool. So page 18, book eight, the Boxerian orders. Elucidators of the office of the Sigilite in the process of purging the city of Thelmpasia of a group of cannibals and warp worshipers recovered an unexpected item in the possession, an intact helmet of a thousand suns legionary. Concealed within its lining was a scrawled parchment assumed to have been written by its erstwhile owner, recalling in summary the findings of an investigation into the organization. 
According to the handwritten notes, which remain uncorroborated due to the thorough punitive efforts of the elucidators, Thelmpasia has fallen under the thrall of an ancient faith. Calling themselves the Devourers, the members of this group worshipped an entity called Haksujan, a holy being renowned for its insatiable appetites. Haksujan, according to local myths, judged its servants by their martial strength. Its worshippers meeting in secret to undertake ritual melees. The leaders of the order were the most accomplished pugilists in these brawls, their might and martial prowess being their criteria of selection, and their strength only appeared to grow with the favor of their brethren and their deity. If the combat resulted in death, as it should per the tradition of the order, all of the fighters present would partake in eating the corpse of the fallen, emulating the appetites of their unearthly master. Parallels were drawn on the recovered parchment between the behavior of the devourers and dozens of other incidents of occult activities throughout the galaxy, tracing back to pre-unification Terra. Apparently well-versed in the occult, the author of the note linked the ritual practices of the devourers with the Brotherhood of Godon on Beta Hethercon and with the children of Jununka on Rothberg VI. The author goes on to theorize all such organizations descend from that order of Bakshiria the Hungerer, a faction encountered by the Emperor on the sub-Indus archipelagos of ancient Terra. Though ostensibly eliminated by the forces of unification, their beliefs remained subtly present in his domains and were carried across the stars by his armies. This is substantiated claims the scrawled text by the fact that all worlds touched by the outbreak of similar groups were brought to compliance by the 73rd Expeditionary Fleet, which carried warriors from that region of Terra. Though purged one by one, similar groups have appeared in other areas of the galaxy and are thought to have been propagated by soldiers of the Great Crusade, who in the field may have witnessed and then initiated uh, or imitated their saviors among certain legions of the space marines partaking in a limited form of anthropophagy. When eventually returned to the 15th legion, the helmet was identified as that of Mikolav Bast, fated vigilator of the Thousand Suns, Amatara Occult, who was declared missing in 890 M30. Bost's helmet was repowered by the armorers of his legion, and extensive audio dictation was discovered in its data core, detailing the findings of his investigation into the Haksujen order and presumably other such groups. The Thousand Sons deemed this report to be too dangerously arcane to share with the officers of the Sigilite, and accordingly claimed to have destroyed the helmet and its contents. Though multiple petitions were filed, the 15th Legion would not explain the reason behind Basque's concealed presence in Thempasia or the extent of his investigations. So that is Whoa. a, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's just, I love it, man. I love it for all the reasons that we do this. We do it for the deep lore and the idea that you've got Thousand Sun agents you know, sort of out on their own doing clandestine operations into warp cults and then, you know, denying the pres- their presence is just, um, I mean, it's perfect for, uh, for where we're going. But uh, yeah, guys, what do you think? 
Well, I gotta say, little nuggets like this are both amazing and, like you said, complete and total vindication, you know, for why we do this and what we're doing this for. But in the other direction, it's just like, a, what did we talk about last time on um, the warp witches that were like purged by the Night Lords? And it's infuriating because that sounds like the coolest shit ever, but we only get like these tiny little nuggets of detail. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, um, yeah, they're like little Easter eggs and you gotta go try to either connect the dots, go down a rabbit hole or um, just wait. And hope that someday, you know, uh, we get a little bit more or we can do, you know, you can do what we do with uh, with D43, right? It's just treat it as this really cool, unexplored, unexplored territory and uh, just create your own adventure. I definitely need some warp witches in my D43. Yeah, that's going to have to be like. I don't know. Maybe we should think of like a regiment of renown kind of thing. Yeah, I could. Uh, I could definitely see Gethra being being in D forty three. We could do that until you know canon lore comes out and we have to redact it. But um, man, that would be so cool. We'd have. To, we'll have to get Steven on that project. You know, give us. Some oh, and more. you know he'll jump right into it too. Or maybe Austin with the new demon rules. Give us some warp witches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, um, Jason, man, where are we going with the uh, with the early lore of of the Thousand Suns today? Well, our lore today is about before even they were the Thousand Suns, back when they were just the Fifteenth Legion, and uh, the Fifteenth Legion. Uh, the thing they make immediately apparent over and over ad nauseum is how completely ordinary they were originally. I uh, tracked it in the first uh, three pages. They mentioned how ordinary they are seven separate times. So uh, <clears throat> obviously they're going to be as far from ordinary as possible. So I thought first... <laughs> One of the things to kind of start this little section off right with the 15th Legion is this quote uh, where we're starting out on page 140 from Aeolus the Lesser. Uh, He says, A seeker will make three great errors on their ascent, no matter how bold their spirit or keen their sight. The first error is to believe they have reached the end of the path when in truth they have only taken the first step. The second error is to believe that the end of the one path is the beginning of another. The third error is to believe that any price is worth paying to take another step. These are the errors, their number is three, and their reward is the loss of all they have ever gained and ever loved. So those are pretty heavy words to head in to what we know ends up happening to the 15th. But in the meantime, uh, Dave, like you were talking about, there's almost like this dichotomy to the creation of the Thousand Sons. On the one hand, I mean, Malkador's secret police are uh, disappearing. Anybody who has even the vaguest contact with, you know, warp-related entities. And on the other hand, the Emperor knew exactly what he was doing when he created Magnus and the Thousand Sons. Like, he may not have understood exactly where they were ending up, but he knew what he was doing. In the same way that the Imperial Truth is kind of contradicted by half of the Imperium being a giant robot church, 
uh, in the other direction, the creation of the 15th Legion itself kind of, you know, contradicts it as well. And I mean, I think all three of us are, uh, you know, pretty steadfast in, you know, it's much more the imperial lie than the imperial truth. But uh, the emperor is pretty blatant about how much of a, you know, I guess he's almost sort of a false prophet in this regard. But uh, anyhow, 15th Legion. So starting out here, they make a couple of key points. Uh, where other legions kind of walked into infamy, the Thousand Sons were plunged into it almost against their will. Magnus was a huge driving force behind what caused the legion as a whole to descend into, uh, well, I'd say martyrdom. Other people would, you know, argue traitors, but... Uh, <clears throat> And really, the first problem for everybody from the lowest-ranked tactical marine to Magnus himself, their first problem was inarguably pride. The second being those they trusted, and the third, they were really kind of uh, set adrift by the Imperium at large. Magnus uh, was eventually supposed to be plugged into the Golden Throne, you know, that, which is uh, kind of the running theory, but... Uh, they were kind of created in this weird you know, dichotomy of thought of their entire purpose for creation was being actively campaigned and expunged against by Malkador and the Emperor. So from the very beginning, they had lots of problems going on. Uh, again, constant reference to how ordinary and not unusual they were starting out. They were actually created pretty late on uh, so far as the legions went. Uh, they were created after Luna had fallen. Uh, the firstborn legions were kind of already on their way, you know, conquering the soul system. The Luna wolves were already out and about. Uh, the dark angels, of course, were already rampaging around, bringing the soul system to heal. But what's interesting is both terrestrial and warp storms marked the creation of the 15th Legion. These massive warp storms that had isolated Terra during Old Night really resurged almost as powerfully as they did before, which caused a huge cascade of problems. Everything from uh, psychic emergence and mutation in the human population on Terra, which was already a really big problem, uh, comes back in force. Uh, Voidborn shipping between even stuff within the soul system started to become a huge problem, and ships were, you know, essentially locked in orbit. And panic and superstition sweeps across the new Imperium, strong enough to actually provoke responses from the, well, <laughs> from the Emperor's lackeys to, you know, again, destroy this sort of superstitious rebellion. And these storms had names across all the different parts of Terra. Uh, they give a couple of examples, like the Nordifric Conclaves referred to it very dramatically as the Song of the Blood Skies. Uh, the Noble Houses of the Equatorial Plates referred to it as the Spiral Misrule. But more or less all of the histories that were there to record it uh, referred to it as the First Tempest. So in the... In the creation of the 15th Legion, it was very unique in how it was created. And 
as it was being created and these huge storms kind of resurge, the emperor doesn't really seem concerned. I mean, that's kind of a running theme throughout the heresy. Like even when Horus is, you know, taking over Mars and oh, kicking on his front door, the emperor seems unconcerned. But uh, what's interesting here is it says that his promptness and his unconcernedness seem to uh, kind of indicate preparation and forethought. Like he knew this was going to happen in the exact same way he knew what he was doing when he created the Thousand Sons. And what's kind of interesting, too, is this is a good possibility that several branches of the imperial court and government kind of owe their inception to this first tempest. Uh, they touch on both the Silent Sisterhood and the Black Sentinels of the Astra Telepathica. Uh, kind of owe their initial inception and their uh, and their foothold in the branches of the Imperial Court to this first Tempest. And uh, again, in their creation, it's really the only thing that's unique to the 15th Legion starting out. Uh, they said strictures were imposed upon them beyond that of their fellow legions. They were, in fact, uh, drawn from perhaps the most stable, loyal, and culturally sophisticated of the emperor's domains on Terra. So, you know, suck it, other 19 legions. But uh, this is specifically the Achaemenid Empire and the enclaves of the Fire Lords of Aus and the Kashai Domains. Uh, all of these were some of the first domains to, you know, bend the knee and give fealty to the emperor back during his earliest wars of conquest. And they had been supplying warriors and war materiel since the earliest battles of the unification wars. And kind of the really big and maybe a little ironic part here is all of these uh, domains had populations that were largely free from the really unpredictable mutations that are... Uh, was really a rife problem with early Terra. And other aspirants were drawn from across Terra, but they were in such low numbers as to be pretty much indistinct. An example they give is the Ionis Plateau. It only gives up a single youth to the 15th Legion, while uh, hundreds were taken and raised to the 7th, which I thought was kind of an interesting little, you know, backhanded shot at the Imperial Fists, but... Uh, the emperor himself was known to have selected many of the first recruits personally, which was pretty uh, pretty unique. It wasn't unclear what the actual survival rate of those initiates were, but it seemed to go well beyond and above what the other legions were experiencing. I mean, these uh, recruits were hand-selected. Literally all of them were hand-selected by the emperor to start off with, which was pretty much unheard of. Um, and it's, uh, it was important in that they noted a remarkably high rate of implantation and integration successfully, uh, you know, with all of the, uh, implants to become a full Astartes. So, uh, while they don't have exact numbers there, they do have an exact number, uh, between the Terran and Lunan gene forges of exactly a thousand starting out. So it was said at the exact moment the emperor bade his thousand sons to rise from their oath of eternity in the initial forging of their legion, the storms and the warps surrounding Terra broke, which was very ominous. But uh, again, they, uh, in the little section titled The Thousand, uh, no immediate distinguishing characteristics beyond its small size and personal attention from the emperor. 
their first action was actually to quell a rebellion on Terra itself. Uh, they even go to state the initial campaigns and deployments were unremarkable. Uh, they, let's see, purged the transgenic alien blasphemies of the Cloud Warrens of Proxima Three. On uh, Gladrus, they actually held the lines beside the Sixth Legion, very uh, telling for later. And on uh, Seculoris, they castigated non-compliant Mica clans with the 17th Legion back when they were the Imperial Heralds. And they were really distinguished by the displayed degree of synchronization, even beyond that of normal Legionis Astartes, almost as if they had some sort of higher cognition. But uh, starting out, I'm sure you guys have seen, uh, especially Pat recently, the uh, how the iconography of the very early 15th Legion differentiates itself from that of the Thousand Sons that comes later. Um, it's made up of two parts. First off is the Millennial Glyph, uh, commemorating the Emperor's personal announcement and appreciation. And uh, the elements of the ochre panoply of the immortal regiments of the Achaemenid empires. Both of those combined to see that really distinctive early 15th Legion iconography that we all know and love. And uh, they remain otherwise undistinguished, but uh, successful and worthwhile until the second decade of the Great Crusade where the first whispers and rumors of their strange reputation start to surface. Insert ominous music here. Bum, bum, bum. Exactly. There you go. We do our own sound effects here. We do. Dude, that is, um, man, there's a lot to get into there. Like, I feel like the emperor just being so involved in their selection, um, is hugely like telling in terms of like what he has planned for them. Right. And the fact that he takes them, that he's got the 15th Legion basically coming from the most loyal, you know, of his holdings on Terra, they're largely homogeneous and he's handpicking them. I mean, I mean, come on, right? Like if that doesn't mean that these guys you know, have a special purpose that the emperor's got in mind. I mean, I, that's, that is awesome. And I've read that too. And I just totally forgot. But um, the other thing, Jason, I was it sort of kept coming up when I was listening to you talk is, I don't know if you remember this from, it was either uh no, no fear or um, the burning of Prospero. But do you remember the, the scene where Magnus is talking to, um, somebody, I think it's another Primarch. And he said, I have always known my father. There was never a moment since my creation when we were not sort of connected, right? I, um, I think that's when he's talking to Lorgar, but don't quote me on it. I'm pretty sure you're quoting First Heretic. Oh, maybe it is First Heretic. You're right, actually. I, I think it might be the scene where Logar and... Magnus are um, up on top at the top of Spire, and Logar is trying to get answers. Was that it? Was before? Was that before or after um, the the webway is breached? That would be before. That's way before. That's even before uh, the heresy. Even 
Okay, cool. Yeah, so that that, that actually makes sense. Um, And so if that makes sense, so if that's true, right? If we if we can make that reliable in terms of you know history, then that means of all the primarchs, Magnus was actually the first one to know the emperor, and the emperor was the therefore like he was never lost is what I'm saying you know, um, which is very interesting. So I think you know the emperor obviously knows the psychic potential of the primarch that he's going to give this legion to and that must go into his calculation when he's handpicking them and sort of creating them for this purpose right i don't know well one thing that jumped out to me is in that initial creation of the 15th i know we call the uh the emperor a hypocrite pretty often but in this it's almost like he's setting them up now, he doesn't need a secret police like to quell, you know, warp uprisings and whatnot. He's already got Malkador. Like, so that would be my initial thought as to why he needs the 15th Legion. But he doesn't. He's got Malkador there. But it's almost as if he's like setting them up to be used in the same way as a, um, as like the Night Lords or the World Eaters, where their weapons to be like used and blunted and discarded because he knows as a legion, their entire focus is, you know, occult knowledge, um, use and, you know, pioneering the warp. And in this galaxy and this, you know, Imperium he's building, there is no place for that. If the Imperial truth is going to hold true, like you couldn't, you know, tell your populace, Hey, there's no, there's no warp, there are no demons. Like, if you have an entire legion of, I mean, during the heresy, pretty well known, you know, um, Astartes were pretty well known to the general populace. Uh, you couldn't have an entire legion of guys whose entire job it is to work with these, you know, warp energies. So, yeah. No, you're, you're, you're spot on. I wouldn't say the emperor as much as he is like, um, operating sort of from a different, like a different place, right? And his his moral compass is not like what our moral compass is. It's a lot of paradoxes, right? There's a lot of paradoxes inherent in like the emperor. But um, so so I would I think in, in in book eight into this, Jason, and maybe next episode I'll I'll read another like sort of vignette from from book eight because it's spot on for to what you're saying. I think the 15th Legion was created specifically to deal with um, warp uh, entities and uh, sort of the psychic um, infestation that the galaxy already had. And so they were, they were sort of, they were the special task force of the Emperor to go out and, you know, sort of fight fire with fire, right? Um, where where other legions would not be properly equipped to deal with an enemy that had you know massive psychic potential that you know the thousand suns would do that and uh, so yeah yeah I mean that that then that's sort of in keeping with the emperor right he's got machinations within machinations so another thing that kind of jumped out at me as uh, 
I don't know if it's like ironic or poetically coincidental, but they mentioned these initial recruits were pulled almost exclusively, not quite, but almost from those uh, three different regions that were exceptionally loyal and more or less free from, you know, the mutations that were kind of rife on early Terra. But, uh, What's interesting to me is how terrible the flesh change was for, you know, the initial Legion. It almost, I will talk about it more next time, definitely, but it almost unmade the Legion before Magnus, you know, was returned to them and he, you know, quote unquote, fixed it. So just, it's kind of, it throws me because think like how terrible that flesh change deal could have been if they hadn't had those super strict, you know, recruitment procedures. It would have been like a whole world of different horribleness. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good point. And, and it makes me think of like, um, Araman and his, his twin brother. Um, I can't remember his name right now. Ormust. Uh, yeah, Ormust, right? And so like, like, Aramon essentially like resists the flesh change just like through through like just willpower, right? Just like sheer will, um, you know. And uh, yeah, I think that speaks to a huge sort of resilience within their sort of gene pool. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's pretty cool, man. It's pretty cool to look back at sort of the beginnings of this legion that uh, that so tragically. You know, and I think they were loyal, and I think they kind of like really right up until the end were were still trying to figure out a way to get back, you know, um, which just makes it so tragic. But uh, I mean, the the destruction of Prospero by the Space Wolves, and you know the the Custodes contingent that they had as well. I mean, you can certainly say they were trying to still be loyal, but I I think that was. That was the straw that broke the camel's back, I think. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're you're right, Pat. I think that was that was probably the straw that broke the camel's yeah. back. Yeah. But I mean, if instead of all-out destruction of Prospero, they instead just came peacefully, that would make a difference. Um, but see, I always like to think of the loyalist Thousand Sons as almost a uh, let's see, reaching back for some Dungeons and Dragons terms, uh, almost like a chaotic good. Like, they're trying to do their best. They're trying to, you know, elevate their, you know, brother legionaries. They're trying to, you know, pave the way and pioneer all of these new, like, warp things and figure out all of this dangerous crap in the galaxy for humanity. And they're even trying to, you know, just like the Ultramarines, figure out things to do to make themselves useful after the war is done and, you know, the galaxy settled. But it's they break from those rules and they kind of, you know, much like a radical inquisitor 10,000 years later, they kind of, you know, have those good intentions turned against them. Now, on the other hand, you can definitely say I can definitely see the loyalist perspective of how, you know, Thousand Sons are just, you know, arrogant and self-serving and trying to, you know, siphon all of the knowledge to themselves and guard it because knowledge is power guard it well uh blessed is the mind too small for doubt and uh other 40k tropes we all know and love but um i always 
I always like to look at the Thousand Suns like they were legitimately trying to do good in the same way the Space Wolves thought they were doing good. Well, maybe not Lehman Russ. He was kind of an asshole and he jumped at the chance to, you know, fight Magnus. But other than that, in general, good people, I think, is the takeaway there. Oh, yeah. I mean, Magnus, I think we can all agree Magnus was a turd. Um, but I would definitely put him in that chaotic good corner easily. You know, I he didn't disagree. mean to destroy the webway. He he just wanted to warn his father that, hey, Horus and like the rest of the Primarchs are going to try and kill you and take your, See, you know, I mean, take your empire. We're all Thousand Suns players here. Like, and I think, don't let me talk for uh, you guys, but I think we can collectively say Magnus was a turd. Like, Magnus did plenty of stuff wrong. I, I like Magnus. I'll be I'll be Magnus's advocate. I, I mean I don't I mean I don't think he was turd. He was um I think he was maybe a little naive. I think he was maybe a little um overconfident in his own sort of um power, you know, and uh, I think that's sort of what led him down the road to to sort of damnation, but I mean, I think it's also important to like understand like what Magnus is, right? I mean, he's just like like the emperor stitched him together from like a thousand warp entities, you know? Like the emperor just goes out, finds some like like lesser. I mean, this is the way I interpret this, Jason. I mean, let me know if you think I'm off base on this, but I mean, the emperor goes out, finds like you know, some lesser warp entities and like stitches them together together and like gives them a consciousness. Um, you know, because I think that's what happens when Magnus, you know, sort of explodes. Um and his shards go everywhere. But but yeah, no, I mean I don't think Magnus is a turd. I think he he certainly was was one of the wisest uh of of the Primarchs. And I think this is what puts him and his legion in sort of direct conflict with Malkador and Malkador's sort of like little mini inquisition, right? His secret police is that to the thousand sons, like no knowledge was forbidden, right? It's just any knowledge and sort of the accumulation of all knowledge was the, was the end goal, right? And sort of this perfect, you know, perfect understanding. And, uh, and Maybe so I, uh, they got along so well with the Mechanicum. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, that's sort of the same with the sort of the heretical part, at least of the Mechanicum. I love your comparison to like radical inquisitors, because I mean, that's exactly what the Thousand Sons are, right? They're just totally radical inquisitors who, oh, yeah. who don't understand the the danger of of what they are sort of courting and uh, the means to the ends. Um, but uh, but no, it's awesome. I mean, it's just for so many reasons, I think the Thousand Sons are one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting, uh, legion in in the heresy and, and even into the 42nd millennium. Right? I mean, I think I don't want to I don't want to detract too much from this, but like, I still think Aramun's a good a good guy, man. I still think he's fighting the good fight. So. Well I mean, we do try and uh, give our readers a little bit of ex or readers. <laughs> I hope you're not reading this somehow, <laughs> like a speech to text sort of deal. That would be an awful idea. 
Yeah. Um, we do give our listeners some, uh, you know, added reading. So I think it might be worth it to uh, mention stuff like, uh, what is it? The Araman Exiled series is pretty exceptional so far as 40K books go. And uh, without a doubt, Talon of Horus and Black Legion by Aaron Dimsky Bowden. Yes. My yes. Favorite 40K series, hand down. And I think. Uh, Iskandar Kion is probably the smartest space marine in the galaxy. Uh, the dude is a mercenary, and he only takes payment in Archaeotech weaponry and uh, Mechanicum Automata. So he knows he knows what's important in life. That's you mean awesome. to defeat your enemies, see them flee in front of you, and hear the lamentations of their women? Yeah, and you know how you make break your enemies and make them flee in front of you? Big giant goddamn robots. Damn fucking straight. Uh, at the height of it, uh, his entire little menagerie of robots is called the Syntagma. Uh, he has over a hundred Castellax units, so that's not even counting Oof. like uh, you know Thalaxi cyborgs and whatnot. Oh my god, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Did- just to go on a non sequitur down that, that trail. Um, I think when they describe him walking through the bridge, they just, um, they describe the walls through each corridor, just being covered in thalax poised to like attack. So this guy knows what's up. He used them as an anti boarding party on his original ship, the Taluk, which I think is hilarious. Oh yeah. Most definitely. Like, hey, we're uh, we're gonna board this ship because we're getting like minimal life signs. It's just gonna be a whole bunch of crew surfs. We're gonna get like this famous Thousand Suns dude's brand new ship. It's gonna be great. That plan never goes well. Mm-mm. But all right, guys, can we think of uh, anything else important we want to touch on? Hmm. I mean, if you guys want, I can read the next excerpt. Um, book eight that deals with the uh, the thousand suns and a uh, a very interesting warp cult called the Coven of Resurrectionists. Where we can we can definitely do it for next time. Uh, I am all for going with it this time because that'll be a terrific lead in the next time. Perfect. Let's go for it. All right, guys. So this is page twenty of book eight called the Coven of Resurrectionists. On the distant eastern edge of the ghoul stars, an esoteric faith with practices previously unheard of was encountered by the pathfinders of the Imperium. Dubbed the Resurrectionists, the cult had taken root on Damire, and from there it had spread along the small human sublight empire, which had colonized the six worlds of the same system. The Resurrectionist faith Faith was overseen by a clan of grinning leaders who were known as the Coven, gray bearded and black cloaked men whose spryness belied their apparent years. The Coven of Resurrectionists held sway over the ruling classes of the Damarite Empire and were widely held to be a positive force by its people, though a subtle sense of cultural stagnation appeared to have come into being under the influence of the cult as was observed by the second and the third imperial delegations which arrived in the subsector. Three times in the space of as many decades, the Imperium had come to the Damorite Empire with news of Terra 
and the emperor. Three times the world of Damire had accepted them, responding enthusiastically to the promise of new knowledge and technology, taking to the introduction of STC infrastructure with fervent interest. On each occasion, the denizens of Damire rose up shortly thereafter and led by their grinning cup overthrew the Imperium's representatives. Retribution came to Damire, and three times their empire had been raised and its people slaughtered. As had happened three times before, Imperial scouts once again intercepted short-range communications within the neighboring Thramis sector, and once again, they returned to Damire to find a pristine empire, enjoying its isolation and unblemished by Imperium influence. A platoon of Thousand Sons Legion joined by their fourth Imperial delegation to reach Damire. There, once again, the denizens of Damire seemed genuinely surprised to meet the new arrivals, as if having never seen people from the stars before. Thinking they had fallen off course and encountered an undiscovered similar world, the representatives of the Imperium were ready to mark its position for future compliance and move on, if not for the intervention of the centurion Urjkar Lisk of the Thousand Sons, who, identifying the presence of the occult behind the riddle of Damire, insisted that the Damire Empire be abolished immediately and permanently. After the fourth instance of Damire being raised, Lisk and his command remained on the once again ruined world. Within weeks, vast crescent-shaped slashes in reality appeared across Damire apparently cut open from some other realm. From these tears in real space emerged the empire of Damire once more, just as it had been. Millions of souls, cities, forests, and lakes, and more appearing on their world anew. With them came the still-grinning members of the coven, carrying their curved ceremonial blades. With these weapons, the coven sliced more wounds in reality as the world of Damire was restored, before retreating through the final cut together. As the Terran reality began to close, the Thousand Suns Legionnaires followed the coven through the breach in space and time. Within the real space tear, Lisk and his unit found themselves in a dense and beautifully filled forest with, filled with life. As they followed the coven, day turned to night and the seasons changed with every step until all blurred together being always both day and night, summer and winter. They reportedly witnessed birth, death, and decay at an accelerated rate. Though all life seemed unworried by morality and unblemished by decay, appearing refreshed again, though subtly altered by the cycle. Lisk would later reflect that he was filled with an unfettered sense of joy to have found an elusive realm in which there was no despair no war, and all life was eternal and perpetual. He would name this realm the, Vand the Vanden Glow, though through study of imperial records from the first Damire encounter, it can be inferred that the resurrectionists referred to it as the Grin. Emerging from the Grin, through another half-moon slash in reality, the Legionnaires found themselves to be in a city of one of the other worlds of the Damirite Empire, already in an advanced state of repair. Here the Thousand Sons, suddenly bereft of the joy they had felt and embittered that, they even, that even their highly regulated emotions were so easily manipulated by the influence of the other realm, attempted to break the perpetuating cycle of resurrection. They hunted the covenant of resurrectionists through the streets, mercilessly gunning them down. 
Many escaped into the grin or tumbled dying into it only to rise again, closing the portals behind them. Taking up the blades of the fallen cultists, the thousand suns cut their own passages into the ethereal forest beyond. Within, they cut down the last grinning madman, but at the moment of their death, they burst into life anew and continued to flee, cutting paths to other worlds in order to escape. Though this left them vulnerable to a mortal death at the hands of the space marines in pursuit. While the Thousand Suns were attempting to boldly subdue the coven and capture its weapons, several of the coven lashed out with their subtle blades, cutting the space marines in many dimensions, extinguishing their lives with a shocking finality which the grin could not restore. In rage and retaliation, some few of the Thousand Sun warriors dipped into their psychic power, destroying fleeing resurrectionists with etheric lightning. This was a mistake, however, for the force of the warp was hidden behind the glamour of the grin and poured directly into the space marines. They began to mutate without control, dying to a curse of changing flesh. These same mutated brothers then rose again, unharmed, only to suffer the agony of the change over and over again in a repeating cycle against which nothing could be done. With the coven pursued until its threat was extinguished, the remaining thousand sons cut a portal back to Damire, where they found a world much alike that that they had recently destroyed, but obviously in decline, its air rancid and its buildings ruined. Back in reality and furnished with the knowledge that the Vandeglo was a lie of the great ocean, Lisk and the handful of the surviving brothers were forced to collapse the final route into the grin with their, with their etheric might, leaving their forsaken brothers within with the strange blades which had opened the way. As the Thousand Sons did so, they witnessed the once hale people of Damire wither to dry leather corpses and their structures finally fall into clouds of ash. The forces of the Imperium fleet which re- recovered the Thousand Suns, would report to Lisk that the other worlds of Damire had simply vanished. Damire itself was placed under a cordon over which the Thousand Suns would maintain vigilance for a century against the possibility of the system once again being reborn from the ether. So that is the story of the Coven of Resurrectionists, which I think is perfect given the uh, sort of the the intersection of the warp cults that we've been talking about and uh, sort of the special, special place the Thousand Suns have. What do you guys think? Uh, it's fucking spooky is what it is. So they still have those blades then? You mean the, the Thousand Suns that made it out? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would assume they did. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, you know, that was a hundred years before the the fall of, you know, the burning of Prospero, the Council of Nikea, that was a hundred years before, you know, those might've been some of the first instances of the flesh change. I don't know. It's hard to put some of this stuff into a, you know, solid like chronology, but. I mean, isn't it that like, I feel like they talk about this in like the Black Crusade um, RPG and like some of the lore that's inside that. I know some of it's retconned out, but bear with me. They talk about how when psychers use their abilities within a, a a place of a lot where warp where the warp is, um, it can it can uh, speed up that change, and so I wonder if 
if what you're saying is true, if like, you know, because they started using their psychic powers within the grin, that may have sped up the, uh, the change itself. I mean, yeah, I think you're right, Pat. I think, I think sort of the analogy that I have about using psychic, they're like always more powerful, right? You right. know, is sort of the, the sort of the, the, the physical underlying physical princes of principles of reality are just not there in the warp. So you, you know, you're sort of, you can, you can do things which you can't do and sort of the real world. Um, so yeah, that may have sped up and may have led to the, the, the onset of the flesh change, but, uh, yeah, I, I think I love that little, that little story because I think it really does sort of speak to the purpose that the, the 15th Legion had, right? So it's like, we can't figure this out. We, 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 we like exterminated this planet like three times. <laughs> like we burned it to the ground. It keeps coming back. The fuck's going on? It's like, well, we don't know, but uh, go over there, get the thousand sons. They're pretty smart dudes, right? Send them along with your little delegation back to the planet and uh, just see what happens. So I think it's... Uh... Words to live by. Thousand sons. <laughs> They're pretty smart dudes. Yeah. I don't know. So, Jason, where are we going next time, man? Well, uh, next time we're going to get into some of the uh, really fun initial engagements and battles for the Legion and kind of start to set up where there might have been some problems. Uh, Nothing nothing too big, but stuff starts, you know, falling apart. It's bad. Uh Uh-oh. Well, that can't be good. I like it. Well, um, thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm trying to think if we've got any plugs. Dave, you got anything? I mean, the only plug I have, guys, is got to go check this. It's on Imager. It's called Thousand Sons Kill Team Osiris and the Lost. Um, I think Sarah's handle on uh, Imager is Peach Punk. Uh, you just got to check it out. It's, it's fantastic. I saw it in person and the lore behind it is just, it's phenomenal. So go check it out and go check out her other stuff because it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's amazing how much lore she's put in it and how much work she's put into just like the, the conversion and everything just to make it look so awesome. So yeah, no, she's a super cool chick. I mean, like literally being stuck in a line for two hours, it's not even the right way to say it. Like it was, it was, it was awesome. The the two hours just flew by. I know Jesse's going to reach out to her hopefully soon and see if we can get her on a show, you know, through a regular Remembrancers retreat because, um, I mean, she's, she's just very cool and uh, she does a lot of really great stuff for, for the hobby. So that is my plug, my friend. Yeah. Um, I think for me, I'm going to, I know we've been plugging and uh, plugging him basically this entire month and, and some of last month, but the, uh, the terrain tutor, uh, Mel Bowes, good friend of the cast. Um, his Kickstarter still up. They, they're almost done reaching like all of their stretch goals. It's amazing how quickly um, this Kickstarter for how to build terrain um, the the book that he's he's developing um got funded and i know i've watched his videos in order to get insight i know others 
have um, and if you kickstart anything, I, this is totally worth it in my mind. Um, so go check that out on Kickstarter. It's uh, called the Terrain Essentials. Um, and go check out his page, which is uh, the Terrain Tutor. Very cool. Yeah. Jason, you got anything? Uh, unless Coca-Cola wants to give me a sponsorship <laughs> uh, for Coke Zero, I am solid. Yeah. Um, Coke, please sponsor us. Our boy Jason, he needs that sweet, sweet caffeine. I mean, really, with all the Coke Zero I go through, I'm essentially keeping that uh, <clears throat> that shipping facility nearby in Sandston, you know, afloat. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is true. Like, Jason will show up to my house with, like, a pack of, like, Coke Zero. I mean, and, I've uh, traded bits for Coke Zeros with him. Like, I'll say, hey, Jason, do you have a Cataphractic Terminator? He'll be like, yeah, I'll give it to you for a Coke Zero. I'm just saying, I'm not quite sure how you still have blood in your system. I'm pretty sure it's just Coke at this point, Jason. That's the secret. I mean, it is, it's really just all Coca-Cola Zero. Oh, well, uh, thank you all for listening. And I hope to see you all next episode. So uh, fuck off, Craig. Fuck right off, Craig. <laughs>